How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm just going to go ahead and hit record so we can get all of Todd's bullshit out of the way early. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, uh, Todd is not a Toby <laughs> fan. <laughs> we know this Buckle now. in, Todd. We, we got, a, we got oh, several boy. weeks to go. <laughs> We're going to be spending a good chunk of 2021 in the world of Toby Hooper. So. <laughs> what, you, what is that? Are you doing like the David his, Letterman? His collar, yeah. The David Letterman thing? He was yeah. doing David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> so on Sorry. this week's episode of the cinema shockers something from the meat case linda <laughs> Jesus. i just remember that being a david letterman thing it was <laughs> i used to uh, do the, i used to do the thing if i ever had to eat especially for like school or church or something where i had to wear a tie i would grab my uh you know sport coat and do it back and forth so the tie knot would wiggle back and forth like you used to do uh, wow you must have been very popular yeah <laughs> Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am your co-host, and I did an intro perfectly. My name is Gary Horde. Well, yeah, pat yourself on the back there, Gary. Good job. I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We're joined today by writer, comedian, Toby Hooper enthusiast, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome I'm to very, the show, Todd. I'm very enthusiastic to be here. Thank you. Turns out, remember remember how we started this podcast doing uh, George Romero and Todd liked about two out of the 10 movies that we talked about on that that series. I think he liked Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and hated everything else. No, you oh. like Night Riders. You like yeah, Night Riders. I like, yeah, I love Night Riders. Three out of 10. Three Boy, out of 10. Batting a point three or whatever that is. I don't Maybe know. Maybe Toby Hooper uh, has a drama we could hit on and Todd will like that. Todd just doesn't like the horror movies and Todd considers uh, himself a horror guy. So it's weird that it's, well, I, as know, it turns out, pretty much every film in this series is horror or horror centric horror adjacent because there's, there's a couple there's, there's a couple down the line, line that are like sci-fi horror or, okay or lean a little more sci-fi i'm down for sci-fi but, but yeah he doesn't he didn't really have his filmography is almost entirely horror so but there's gotta be i hate, a, I hate there's that gotta be at like least one there's gotta be at least one, one what like well i guess we'll find out i mean yeah. have you, you've never seen have you seen poltergeist before i've never seen poltergeist Oh, he didn't direct it anyway, so. <laughs> uh, whoa, a controversial statement. Whoa, <laughs> shots fired. That's a, we're going to talk about that another day. <laughs> anyway. You know one thing we didn't cover about Ed Neal last week that I thought was interesting, too? I mentioned what? just casually his, his, his collection of movie posters, you know, that we yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. laughed off. Ed Neal, like, the, the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. Did you know that he also went to work for the Museum of the Humanities or something? He was going to go to L.A. with Hooper and Hinkle. I think he wanted to originally, but then he became one of the big haters on uh, Hooper and, 
and Hinkle, especially. He was mad about not getting paid. Yeah, which we'll talk about a little bit more, I guess, here. But the the thing is, is that he also went to a garage sale or something. I can't find the exact thing now, but I was reading this earlier. He went, he found when when that, when the mobster studio went out of business or whatever, kind of closed down, he found at a like sell all of Toby Hooper's stuff and the stuff from Chainsaw and found like the A and B roll of the film and wow. all of wow. this stuff. And he bought Jeez. it all. And he, he has all, well, he donated the film, the actual film to the Museum of the Humanities and stuff like that. But I just thought that that was really, really weird. Just interesting. Yeah, that's wild. That interesting. How I wonder that? if like, are there studio garage sales where just, I mean, probably not so much nowadays, right? Yeah, this were is they probably what, just a, sell um, off. Were they, were they sell just off sell off, off a bunch of stuff? No, they don't do that. No, this yeah. was a, one that was owned by mobsters and that they went out of business. Oh. <laughs> this isn't your typical Hollywood studio. Uh, you, you, you're not going down to, to, to Warner Brothers and having a fucking uh, estate sell where you can buy the, the ruby slippers from Gone with the Wind. What? Oh, world come on. Those time? go up for sale all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the goddamn Smithsonian. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can't just buy them at a garage sale. Okay, Smithsonian Museum. <laughs> Um, uh, estate sale. <laughs> They've got a bunch of stuff. It's just like, it's we like gotta get rid of it. Some of this shit's just real old and it's dusty. I mean, trauma, <laughs> trauma might do that. It <laughs> seems like a real Lloyd Kaufman move. Like, I've, I've but, been to the Smithsonian. You know, there's only like a third of that stuff is on, is on display. There's got to be a whole bunch of shit in the back that, you know, they're not going to sell it. It's just priceless. <laughs> anyway, welcome to part two of the tragedy of Toby Hooper. Uh, so when last we left Mr. Toby Hooper, he was riding high off the success, both critical and commercial, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And while, as we discussed last week, he wouldn't really see any financial gains from that film upon its original release, it did get the attention of Hollywood, which was kind of his, uh, his whole plan. Uh, soon after that film's release, Toby Hooper and his Chainsaw screenwriter Kim Hinkle were offered a three-picture deal with Universal Pictures. But before they could work on any new films for Universal, they had to satisfy a deal that they'd signed prior to that Universal contract being signed. That film, released in 1976, was released under various titles throughout throughout its release. Uh, such, I, I think there, I counted like eight different titles for this movie. But there, there were uh, titles like Death Trap, uh, Horror Hotel starlight slaughter but it's most commonly known as simply eaten alive if you were one of the millions of moviegoers who were electrified by the unbearable suspense and sheer terror of jaws get ready for eaten alive created by toby hooper maker of the screen sensation the texas chainsaw massacre marty rushton presents a new horror classic eaten alive <laughs> into this house of terror comes a handful of unsuspecting innocents what happens to these people in Eaten Alive will give you the most chilling, terrifying 90 minutes you ever spent in a theater. Marty Rustam presents Eaten Alive. Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman, Neville Brand. Get ready for Eaten Alive, a new horror classic. You know, it's easy to imagine that when you make a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that literally everybody knows you, you're a big star and bam, you're just huge. But uh, keep in mind that everything we told you last week, uh, no nothing's going to work that way for Toby Hooper ever. He made arguably the greatest horror film of all time. And it was just getting recognition, but not always good recognition. We covered all this last week, but just to 
I just felt like recapping quickly. The movie came out, but due to all the process and deals it took to get made, none of the people making it were making any money. And even though the actors were stars now, or at least known, they didn't make anything really. Uh, and well, and it didn't exactly help their careers either. I know Marilyn Burns said that this was kind of a resume killer. Like people, even though the movie was very successful, they'd see it on her resume and be like, oh, you were in that movie? You know, they didn't see it as as a good thing as part of their filmography. Yeah, and, and Toby Hooper, by all accounts, he had no idea what the fuck was going on either. I mean, meanwhile, his movie's getting defended for like First Amendment arguments and debates, and it's getting crucified by journalists and other places. And even at one point, uh, Joe Bob Briggs wrote in one of the uh, articles I read uh, that at a certain point, it even got to a point where the worst word in the title of the film wasn't Chainsaw or Massacre, it was Texas. People started attacking Texas. We're like, this is the only place this could happen, and they're a bunch of rubes and toxic males. This is a toxic male fantasy, and it's poisoning the minds of young men side note not mentioning that there actually have been like articles delving deep into this and found that like lots of younger men actually identified very well with the stronger female in Marilyn Burns and that that was kind of a big deal for some of them but anyway you, you'd think at this point after you make such an impact in the culture you'd be golden I think 95% of the actors that were involved in Texas Chainsaw Massacre thought Hooper had just kind of disappeared and gone on to big time in Hollywood without them. But in reality, uh, much less, much like our old friend uh, Shane Black, he kind of just went quiet because that's well, how he handles things. And what the fuck's he supposed yeah. to do now anyway? None of this was shining a light on a path to Hollywood and what you, what you're even supposed to do. Well, I mean, he did get the attention of Hollywood. You know, he got that universal contract a three film contract but getting hollywood's attention it wasn't like a an, he didn't go from point a texas chainsaw to point b doing like a big studio picture you know it didn't work that way and it rarely does as a lot of filmmakers do hooper and hingle when they they get to hollywood they went through a series of false starts for their, their next film it's not like they got to Hollywood and immediately someone's like, hey, here's a script for Eaten Alive. You know, not that that would have necessarily been their first choice anyway. The mayor of Hollywood doesn't roll out the carpet and hand you your first project? No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so Chainsaw certainly became their calling card and it left to it led to several potential projects. Uh, among that film's fans were guys like Stephen King, William Friedkin, and Steven Spielberg. Spielberg and Friedman both had deals at Universal at the time as well, and they had office spaces near Hooper's on the Universal lot. And Friedkin in particular was a big fan of Chainsaw, and he was actually the driving force behind getting the two Texans a development deal with the studio there at Universal. And he would tell Hooper, he said, you know, you really know how to make movies, and that's good. That'll come in handy. But let's talk about what's important, the bullshit. And what he means is simply all of the politics, bureaucracy, and, well, the bullshit that comes along with making movies for a major Hollywood studio. Given his temperament, it sounds like Toby Hooper loves dealing with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but but it is pretty cool that Free Kid uh, would sort of become his mentor. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Toby Hooper, like, in some of the And this is, you got to think, this is, this is Free Kid right after The Exorcist, and this is Spielberg right after Jaws. Like, these are the two hottest directors in Hollywood right now. Yeah, and I know that Toby Hooper told a story about, like, just how impressive... Like, he didn't even realize, like, how much Chainsaw was catching on until he, like, saw an article on a paper, like, at a gas station, you know? Like, it just hadn't 
hit him exactly how big it was. And he saw like some news clip of freaking walking out of a screening with Dino De Laurentiis of, of Texas Chainsaw. And he's like, holy shit, like these people are walking out of a movie I made. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and just to establish, I mean, my understanding was from some of the interviews is that he was still in Austin all at this point when he saw this. And he had, well, he had been working on a bunch of projects, I guess, trying to, get the attention or to figure out a way to get into LA, including one that where he was uh, writing a murder mystery set in LA that he thought he would get there. Yeah. Well, immediately after Chainsaw, and this, this may have been that movie, Gary, because it, it was reported that Hooper and Hinkle would be working on, well, no, I guess this was another horror movie. It was called Bleeding Hearts. Uh, that was a project that he had been working on, but it had kind of failed to materialize as did another project called Dead, Dead and Alive, which was a proposed collaboration with Friedkin and a writer named L.M. Carson, L.M. Kit Carson. And that's a name that you'll hear come up much further down the line in the series. Dead and Alive was described by Carson as, this is a quote from Carson, a story Toby had about these two elderly ladies. One deals in parapsychology and thanatology, which is the study of death, her sister runs a sort of insane California funeral home where people can die any way they want and videotape a final message to their relatives. They have a contraption there called the Apocalypse-O-Rama, which they rig together to create thunderstorms and hailstorms so the deceased can go out with a boom. But what these two old ladies really do is swap and trade souls that they capture the way kids trade baseball cards. Oh, and I, I would watch these to be all over that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that movie because that sounds wild, <laughs> especially if you're familiar with, with Carson. Um, that was from an interview that he did in Fangoria around the time that Texas Chainsaw 2 came out. But that didn't really happen. I don't know why it fell apart. It just It's just one of, you know, hundreds and thousands of, uh, you know, projects in Hollywood that just for one reason or another just never happened. Mm. So instead, Hooper was offered the chance to direct a movie called Death Trap for a man named Marty Rustum who's a low-budget exploitation producer. Rustum had gotten his start as a producer with a couple of films by Schlockmeister Al Adamson. Uh, Al Adamson is like not, not, a, good, not a good filmmaker, but, but he makes interesting films. And the first of those was one called Dracula versus Frankenstein, not nearly as good as it sounds. Oh, so uh, and then what's one not called, good about that? <laughs> <laughs> and then one called The Female Bunch. Both of those came out in 1971. Uh, the Female Bunch features Lon Chaner, Lon Chaney Jr. in his final film role and was filmed on the Spawn Ranch in 1969 during the time that the Manson family lived on the ranch. Whoa. Perfect. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. That sounds like an exciting behind-the-scenes story. Yes, sir. Hey, that's an episode in and of itself. Now, he would follow those movies up with uh, stuff like Lash of Lust and Psychic Killer, which that actually started Creature from the Black Lagoon star Julie Adams and featured Neville Brand in a prominent role. Lon Chaney's a poopy pants. Did you, <laughs> what? <laughs> that just made me think. Did you look at that clip I put in our Discord about uh, Charles Manson on Ted Bundy? No, I, I didn't get a chance to watch it. No. Oh, man. It's so funny because they're just like, uh, this, uh, we're off on a tangent now, but I'll be very brief. Uh, it's just that he's the, the journalist asks him about Ted Bundy. Uh, what does he say? He's a, he's a crumpkin or a, I forget the word. He's like, he's a, he's a Bundy's a poopy pants. <laughs> like he's, he's trying to impress his mama like what's that got to do with me bitch you don't know me he's a poopy pants this is charles manson saying this <laughs> yeah that's charles manson and i just i loved it anyway so it made me think of that lon chaney's a poopy pants 
<laughs> oh, so the original please cut that into the episode at random times gary <laughs> <laughs> so the original idea for death trap came from rustum and a screenwriter named alvin fast but hooper and hinkle reworked the story to fit their particular style so in the final film fast and rustum get a written by credit while hinkle gets a very strange adapted for the screen credit on the film i don't know why that is i usually adapted for the screen would uh, mean that it was based on maybe a tv show or or even a book Hmm. but not just based on another screenplay that's just called rewriting the screenplay but i imagine it has something to do with with writers guild stuff i'm not really sure why that is but it's very weird Hmm. yeah that's that seems very odd and uh and and maybe some of the story here is like one of those things where like people just remember different things in different times and we're only sure yeah i mean this was 40 some odd years ago so because according to one interview i saw with hooper like he was basically saying he was he was still in austin at the time rustum started reaching out about eating alive or he said at that time uh it was death trap he was getting he was working on this murder mystery thing set in LA he thought that'll get you in LA like you'll have to film there or something like that and then he starts getting this call about death trap and he wasn't interested he said but they just kept calling over and over again and Hooper saw it as this opportunity to go ahead and all right I'll take a role I'll be a gun for hire and get into the town and so he took it as long as he could be allowed to bring Hinkle with him and so Rustum agreed they brought Hinkle uh now on the other side of this is like Marty Rustum who's saying that well, here's all that was going on for him was uh, Jaws happened and it changed everything and people wanted to make Jaws. So Al Fast was his buddy and he said, hey, I got this idea about a big ass alligator and it eats people. And Marty says, hell yes, which is, to be fair, what should always happen anytime somebody pitches a movie about giant killer animals. But <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, they get their version written and I said, I think I saw they, they tried like two different directors and it wasn't clicking. But finally, Al Fast is the one who said, what about this Toby Hooper guy? He did Chainsaw and I hear he's trying to get new projects and get into L.A. Let's go get him. And so that's when they went after Toby. Obviously, considering how the movie turns out and it's not just a giant croc movie, you see where Hooper and Hinkle came in and uh, they had other concerns that they started working on. Yeah, and, and as was the case with Chainsaw and the character of Ed Gein, what it, it said that the character of Judd in this film, and this is what Hooper and Hinkle, I think, brought along to the project, was based on a real-life person as well, a man named Joe Ball, a.k.a. the Butcher of Elmendorf. Yeah. This um, guy's story is fascinating, by the way. And I, I will say, just like we, we credited Joe Bob Briggs's article in Texas Monthly last week when we talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, This is actually also a lot of this information also comes from a Texas Monthly article from uh, the early 2000s, 2002 by a journalist named Michael Hall. Uh, There was this character, this sort of figure of Texas folklore and Michael Hall went to Elmendorf and he started researching to find out if this was actually a real story or not. That's pretty amazing. And, and I mean, clearly some of this is pulled from, and I know we're about to get into Joe Ball. The only other thing I saw, um, Rustum does say that, that Hinkle and Hooper, that was one of their big things, was expanding on the character uh, that right. uh, Neville plays. The only other thing Hooper mentioned was uh, he based like one thing off of it, uh, of the oldest man in the world article he saw in like Life magazine or something, where like mm-hmm. the guy snorted BC powder. And so I just, oh, thought, yeah, I, I was wondering that. about that. I saw, I saw that. that. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, man, that's, that's awesome. Uh, Cause yeah. I was like, what a weird 
thing that this guy is just like snorting his BC. Well, Some the powder guy. is in the powder. So, <laughs> but anyway, but Joe Ball, obviously. Clearly. Yeah. So Joe Ball, <laughs> Joe Ball was a World War I veteran who, after the war, began making a living as a bootlegger during Prohibition. Uh, once Prohibition ended, alcohol continued to be his main source of income, and he would soon open his own establishment in his hometown of Elmendorf, Texas, which was a saloon called the, the Sociable Inn. It sounds friendly enough. Yeah. It sounds friendly. Yeah, sociable. He built a small pond next to the saloon in which he housed six live alligators. It is said that uh, he would actually charge guests to see the gators, especially during feeding time, in which you've got a bunch of drunken Texans hanging around an alligator pit, and he would sometimes throw live cats and dogs to... to the reptiles and charge people like 50 cents to go watch it this was the part that depressed me most about all of this story even toby hoopers it's just that (laughs) they they would just get like stray cats and dogs and throw them in the pond with alligators and it became like this glad this like roman coliseum of of a bumfuck texas (laughs) (laughs) so Ball employed a number of women at the sociable inn as waitresses and bartenders. And a lot of these women would just kind of end up disappearing. <laughs> so one of the people who that ended up disappearing was a waitress named Minnie Gotthart. That was in 1937. Not long after Gotthart disappeared, Ball married another one of his waitresses, a woman named Dolores Goodwin. She would disappear in 1938, the next year. And then a few months after that, another of Ball's women, Hazel Brown, went missing. Did, did anybody refer to these women as the, as the ballers? I, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> but but probably probably Joe Ball did. Like, he was just like, I'm Joe Ball and I'm balling. No, that's a stupid <laughs> joke. I hate that. That's a very dumb name. This is 1937. Uh, I hate <laughs> okay. everything about this whole conversation, and I'd like to move on. <laughs> we'll blame it on time. <laughs> so after Brown went missing, local authorities got reports that Ball had left a strange-smelling barrel behind a neighbor's barn. Uh, so authorities had also been alerted to the fact that several women in Ball's life had mysteriously disappeared. They, so they decided it might be a good idea to look into that, maybe bring this guy in for questioning. Detectives. So when deputies arrived at the sociable inn to arrest Ball, he made a final request. He wanted to close down his bar and have one last drink. And the deputies, for some reason, agreed. So Ball walks to his cash register, hits the, the no-sell button, pulls out a gun and shoots himself in the heart. Now that, that's a baller. You don't shoot yourself (laughs) in the head. You shoot yourself in the heart. Like that seems like the worst. It's like when people stab themselves, it's like, what, what are you thinking? Like go for the easy out. Like you're, there is a 99% chance, you know, where your brain is like, just eliminate (laughs) that. But it's like the heart. I'm not 100% sure I could hit my heart. I don't know. I think it's in this general left region of my chest. But with my luck, I would fuck that up. And so, but, you know, yeah, just have a hole in your body. So after Ball's death, the saloon's handyman, a guy named Clifford Wheeler, confessed to authorities that he had indeed helped his boss murder Gotthart and Brown and helped to dispose of the bodies, even leading them to Brown's remains. Goodwin, by the way, Ball's wife, who had disappeared was alive and well. She had simply walked out on her husband and moved to San Diego, hmm. probably because he was a murderous bastard. You know. Well, well, the story was like some of the stuff I saw in this little documentary about it was that, you know, he had told Goodwin about murdering Minnie, like he had told her that he had murdered the other one, 
or wait, no, wait, whichever one was the wife, doesn't matter. The point is the one that he was married to first that disappeared, he told the next lover, I murdered that one. In reality, she had just left and went to the sister. And so yeah, good, then, good one was the one that left. And the one after that was Hazel Brown. Well, the story of the documentary was, is that one told the other about Ball murdering the wife and they weren't supposed to share that information. And so then the one that got told was also seeing Ball on the side. So they were both, they're both banging Ball. Ball and, and Ball. Yeah. They were both balling, so to speak. Right. Oh God. Anyway, but then one of them found a husband or a guy to be her potential husband was going to leave and bald it, want her to leave. And then she said, well, if you don't let me go, I'm going to tell him about Dolores who you killed. And then he realized his new girlfriend had told his side piece about the murder. And so then he killed both of them and fed them to the gators. There was never even any evidence found that ball had actually fed any of his victims to the alligators that, that's but that true didn't stop, that's fair that didn't stop that urban legend from growing like that that's he became known in that part of texas even now he's known as the alligator killer i'm just saying a lot and, of people could have been saved a lot of trouble if there was just some more clarification here if, uh, <laughs> you know, like, just, but, but yeah so so he became kind of a legend in that part of texas the alligator man the alligator killer the butcher of elmendorf it, this this guy who was basically a serial killer and was feeding his victims to his pet alligators. Even if you go to Elmendorf now and you ask people about Joe Ball, they're like, yeah, that's the guy who killed all of his wives and fed them to alligators. That's, that's like a local legend. Yeah. Well, you get so, you get the rumors now and the rumors go all the way to like, there were twitty gators in that pit and he killed yeah. like upwards of 14 women or something and that sort of thing. So, you know, as, as, it, as it goes. Yeah, so, and much like Joe Ball himself, the character of Judd in Eaten Alive is a decorated veteran. Uh, Joe Ball was a veteran of the First World War, while Judd in the movie is a, is a veteran of Vietnam. And the man who was cast in the role of Judd was known as one of the most decorated heroes of World War II, an actor by the name of Neville Brand. And side note, dude. yeah, there's a good possibility Neville Brand killed multiple women. It's probably, very, probably, very, very, very I just possible. would not doubt it. I would not be like surprised <laughs> if it came it out. Not at all. This guy is fascinating. So born in Iowa in 1920, Neville Brand was a veteran of old Hollywood. Uh, he had been a sergeant and platoon leader during the war, and he was wounded in action in April of 1945. He got shot in the shoulder and nearly bled to death. He was awarded the Silver Star, which is the second highest decoration of valor in the U.S. military. He was also awarded the Purple Heart, the Good Conduct Medal, the American Defense Service Medal, the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal with three battle stars, one overseas service bar, one service stripe, and the Combat Infantry Badge. Like when I say that he was one of the most decorated veterans of World War II, that is literal. They're like he's described as the second most decorated soldier in the entire war. Wow. And when yeah. I say that he may or may not have killed multiple women, one thing is for certain, he has not kill lists. He has yeah, certainly so he has killed, killed someone. <laughs> he has killed people. So after being discharged from the army in 1945, he got his first taste of Hollywood when working on a U.S. Army Signal Corps film with Charlton Heston. And then he later enrolled in drama school on the GI Bill. So he began to work in small parts in film and television in the early 1950s before becoming a leading man himself in 1953's Man Crazy. 
And uh, then, then that was followed by one of his most well-known films, which was Don Siegel's Riot in Cell Block 11, the film that Quentin Tarantino actually called the best prison film ever made. Uh, other well-known roles included a role in Billy Wilder's Stalag 17, outstanding movie if you haven't seen it, uh, John Frankenheimer's Birdman of Alcatraz. I think he played an Alcatraz prison guard in that one. Uh, but one of the, his, probably his most well-known role to most people was as Al Capone in the early 60s TV series, The Untouchables. Mm, okay. Brand played a, he, he was, he played literally in hundreds of roles throughout his career, mostly in like guest roles on television, honestly. Like he, he did a lot of TV, but he was most known as like a television character actor. And here's a little Star Trek connection for you, Todd. Uh, he appeared in a 1964 episode of The Twilight Zone called The Encounter alongside George Takei. Oh, fun. And he would often play the villain in a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows. He, he actually, he started to kind of gain the reputation for playing the villain when he was in a movie in 1956 called Love Me Tender. It's a movie that stars Elvis. He played a character that killed Elvis's character in that movie and was sort of branded a villain at that point. Plus, look at his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, even if you look at young pictures of, of Neville Brand, he looks like a killer. He looks like a villain. He looks like he is not a romantic lead. You know, he looks like he's been punched many times. <laughs> so in the mid 1970s, Brand, he admitted in, in a TV interview um, or in, in, I'm sorry, a magazine interview that he was an alcoholic. He had suffered from alcoholism and he'd spent most of his fortune that he had, you know, the money that he'd made in film and television over the years. That may have led him to take a handful of question, questionable roles with exploitation filmmakers including Rarty, marty rustum as we mentioned before brand had appeared in rustum's psychic killer in 1975 that's a movie that rustum actually directed as a, in addition to producing and writing and that was the film that rustum had done just before eaten alive brand would also appear in rustum's probably his most well-known film as a director which was 1985's evils of the night so they would continue to collaborate even after eaten alive y'all Neville Brand was wild. He like, is wild. And there's, and there's plenty to get into with him if we can get to it a little bit later on some of it. But but for starters, just now, saying he suffered from alcoholism does not paint the perfect picture. Uh, this guy was dealing with some shit. To hear Hooper describe it, the first time he met Brand, he was yellow. Not like a coward, like his skin was literally tinged Like he had jaundice? Yeah. And he drank constantly like just never was not drinking and hooper liked the idea of brand but was really worried about him on the account of him being you know drunk all the time uh like when i do this show so <laughs> hooper is hooper is thinking can this guy even remember lines how is this gonna work and rustum really wanted him because you know they'd work together obviously and they liked each other enough that apparently like neville bram was like told his agent, just make this happen. Whatever it takes to make this movie happen, like, let's just go and work it out, make the deal. Well, he also kind of said, he, he was like, I, I am this guy, which is terrifying. But well, yeah, what I was going to say is that, <laughs> that, that the, there was this character that Hooper and Hinkle had sort of fleshed out into a more prominent role, but they were still working out specifics. And according to Hooper, yeah, like Brand just came in and had this passion and was like, please let me do this role. I know him. I can do this. And he, and he did, and ended up apparently like most of his lines are just like ad lib bullshit that Neville Brown said. He was just a weirdo. Like Hooper describes dude. in one scene just for a, a taste that like there's the scene where like after he kills uh, uh, 
one of the guys, he's walking along that porch and he starts to walk down the stairs. They said Neville Brown just stopped. And then he just stood Neville there Brand. for a minute. What? Neville Brand. Neville Brand, sorry. Neville Brand <laughs> just stopped and he like stood there for a minute and he was like blank. And then he said he literally like just went, I'm here. And just kept going. Yeah, he's a character, he, he was man. Like, I don't know. I don't know what this guy, like, I don't know what's up with him. Well, R- Roberta Collins, who we'll talk about in a second, but she is um, the actress who plays the prostitute at the beginning of the movie with like the Marilyn Monroe hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tells a story on the commentary for this movie. She had kind of become friends with Brand through the making of this, and they were hanging out like what she was described as completely platonic. And they were hanging out like at his house one day after the shoot of the movie. And he just kind of like went crazy on her. Like he like starts running after her through her house. Like, well, they like laid down next to each other on, on his bed or couch. And they were just like, she said she was like fully clothed and like that they had been drinking or something. He was like, you can stay here or whatever. That they like laid next to each other on the bed. But she was like, even at a parka, she said, he said something like no, no lady ever lays down next to me, (laughs) like fully clothed or something like that. And then he starts chasing her and he chases her out of his house. Like she's terrified. Like she lived the movie like with him. (laughs) They were like good friends. And then all of a sudden, like just one night he like snaps there's stories yeah. about him like being on the universal back lot like on the tour tram just like running up and just taking a piss all over it and, like <laughs> there's just like he's there he has stories of, like if you look him up it's it's like he's he's been he was married like three times not necessarily divorces recorded uh, <laughs> like, he just he just wow Wow. did what the fuck he felt like. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, I mean, it's very possible that he was, you know, in addition to the al- alcoholism, like we don't know what, what prompted that, but it could very well have been, he saw some shit, you know, in the war. I mean, he was a, a war veteran and he was like, he wasn't like sitting on the sidelines. Like he was a combat veteran of, of world war two and saw some atrocities that probably led to his alcoholism and probably possibly could have led to some, deep-rooted psychological issues yeah, and combine like deep-rooted psychological issues with heavy drinking and your brain's fucked up and his brain seemed to be pretty fucked up in several ways yeah so neville brand was one of several hollywood veterans that appears in dead alive starring alongside him were uh, mel ferrer who is known for his roles in films like scaramouche and knights of the round table where he played king arthur uh, his late career, though, it included quite a lot of exploitation cinema as well. He appeared in a lot of Italian horror films later in his career, including Umberto Lindsay's 1980 film, also coincidentally titled Eaten Alive, but with like an exclamation point at the end. Oh, so not uh, the same Eaten Alive. Different Eaten Alive. This one's one of the many, many, many Italian cannibal movies that were coming out in the early 80s. Um, Mel Ferrer, by the way, like, I mean, he, he was not, he had worked with Rustum before. So, like, he, he was pitched to Hooper from Rustum and, and Hooper yeah, yeah. talks great about him, like, just loves him. Just talks about how smooth he is as a veteran of acting. Like, he just... He was just like, like he doesn't look down on the fact that he's doing an exploitation movie. Oh yeah, no, he's he's taking the role. He's doing what he's got to do, and and then that's a that's a good point, Justin. Like I mean, a lot of these people you, you'll see talk about it, and like even Marty Rustam, and like in uh, some of the stuff saying like you know like it's easy to uh, I think it was him or 
someone, but they're talking about, you know, like it's easy to like write people off sometimes. Like people do this to actors all the time. I even think about like action stars today that it's like, it's not any different. Like it's always been this way. Like you're hot for a while. And then eventually like you've got to do what you got to do to survive. Yeah. And uh, you take your roles. And he, and, and so Ferrer was doing this thing. I mean, he was, he was a well-known guy at the time, even though you wouldn't, Maybe he's not as famous today as he would have been, but you know, they, they, they were saying like uh, where I was going before was Hooper was talking about like, man, he was amazing. Like in editing, you know, like he knew about editing. He was like, every one of these guys like have their own skill. And he was like, this wasn't digital. Like you did, you couldn't just fix it the same way. It was like, you, if you had to redo a scene, you know, like it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult, like editing everything together for rare was literally the exact same in every scene. And he would adjust like his vocal tone to like match what I was looking for his positioning of his hands, his movement, his steps. Like he was every take like was a total professional. Yeah. He was like, it was amazing. Yeah, so in, in this movie, and Eaten Alive, Ferrer plays Harvey Wood, who is the older man, the uh, the dying father who's searching for his daughter in the movie. So Stuart Whitman, who plays the sheriff in it, had appeared in films like Night of the Lepus, and the role of the the madam, Miss Hattie, uh, the uh, the madam in the brothel, is Carolyn Jones, who is best known, of course, for her role of Morticia Adams in the 1960s uh. Adams Family TV show. Okay. And she I, is, thought, I thought her voice sounded familiar. Yeah, it was. At this point, she's got more of a bit of a smoker's voice. Yeah, uh, she <laughs> she was a longtime smoker, and and died at a fairly young age. She's made up to look much older in this movie, but she died. She was only in her late forties when they made this movie, and uh, she died at the age of fifty three. So just a couple years after this, but oh. yeah. So, but she was also described as just like a consummate professional on this. Like she, and, and people were starstruck. I mean, Toby Hooper grew up watching the Adams family, you know, like he, this was his first quote unquote Hollywood movie, even though it wasn't exactly a studio picture, but he's getting to work with these actors like this, that he kind of grew up on, you know, like he grew up watching nights of the round table. And, That's awesome. Well, if I could say, know? I mean, one of the things we mentioned with Tarantino was his ability to cast these great actors in these smaller roles. And I, and I, I didn't know people who were past their heyday. Yeah. And, and, and maybe you knew this, but I did not, they call this stunt casting. And, uh, Here's an example, or, or maybe that's a term that developed later. I don't know. But here's an example of Hooper doing this in the 70s. Yeah. Like before, like a guy like Tarantino came along and was doing the same thing. Like it was, I mean, these guys were casting. Hooper cared more about characters than he did like a giant monster. And that's even prevalent back in Texas Chainsaw, probably. Like oh, yeah, he, for sure. He, he had different ideas about he wasn't just trying to make a monster. He was trying to monsters make monsters like are often characters as well. Right. Right. So alongside these Hollywood veterans were new up and coming actors, many of whom made a name for themselves working in genre films. Of course, returning to work with Hooper once again was Texas Chainsaw's Marilyn Burns, uh, Janice Blythe, who plays Lynette. She is a character, man. She's fun. Uh, she would later appear just after this as Ruby in both of Wes Craven's the Hills Have Eyes films. And Janice Blythe, if you have the Arrow Blu-ray of this, there's an interview with her, and she is an entertaining character. I, I really am infatuated with her. I'd still, I'd still date her. 
she seems like a lot of fun like she seems like a lot of fun (laughs) and then roberta collins who i mentioned earlier she who plays judd's first victim of the film clara wood she had appeared in films like jack hill's the big dollhouse uh paul bartell's death race 2000 uh, which was one of many roger corman produced films that she'd appeared in she was a veteran of of roger corman's that big dollhouse is like a pam greer movie like she she's definitely grindhouse style oh absolutely yeah big dollhouse is, is is I would say might be the movie that put Pam Greer on the map. Honestly, really good. If you haven't seen it, I, I would recommend checking out those early Jack Hill movies. He he did. It's a women in prison movie. Jack Hill did a, a few of those and some black exploitation movies around that same time. Continue to work with Pam Greer, but I guess we'll talk about that on a Jack Hill series one day or a Pam Greer series or nice a black exploitation series. I don't know. We'll get into it, but I would I would really like to explore his filmography. Then you've got Kyle Richards who plays. The little girl Angie, and I know I know Gary know who's Kyle, who Kyle Richards is. I know her. She's uh she's one of the Real Housewives. She is a Real Housewife. That's true. <laughs> but she also is Lindsay Wallace in John Carpenter's Halloween, which that, is just a couple years. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Not really. No, yeah, she is <laughs> definitely also Lindsay. Be Wall- in, she's, she's coming back. Yeah, she's coming back as Lindsay Wallace in. Uh, well, we should have already seen it, but in David Gordon Green, fucking Halloween pandemic kills. is ruining everything for me. I'm gonna die before Halloween Kills comes out. <laughs> and uh, William Finley, uh, William Finley, who gives an absolutely insane performance here, which I wish was a, I wish he was in the movie more, but his character is unfortunately cut short because he gets murdered. Uh, but he was a regular player in the films of Brian De Palma, and most well known as the title character. And in my favorite De Palma film, as it should be, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. And Toby Hooper was also a big fan of Phantom of the Paradise. So that's primarily probably why William Finley got the job. And they would go on to work together again. Uh, he's, William Finley appears in The Fun House and in Night Terrors, both both with Toby Hooper again later on. And of course, in a, an integral role in the film is Buck, who's rare and to fuck, is a young pre-Freddy Krueger, Robert England. And this is his first of four collaborations with Toby Hooper. Weird. So, like, here's another example. Just like, God, I, I love, I love this new show so much because we're like doing these stories and then we find connections. And I feel like it's even more so than before with Psychotronic. Like, it's like they just lead perfectly. I don't know. It's just, it's fun. Yeah. Like, I don't even know if if you thought about this, Justin. But I did not know the buck and fuck thing was a thing prior. To quit no, Tarantino. No, I didn't. I did not know that that was something that I. I, I guess you can always assume that Tarantino is is getting that from somewhere, but I did not know. I mean, to quit Tarantino rips like something from a grindhouse movie. Who to thunk it? But yeah, yeah. Like, but uh, <laughs> and it's the first line of the of the entire movie is names Buck, rare and to fuck. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's I love. I honestly love Robert England's delivery of that line too. It's I just, do. I, I do too. I think he's really great in this movie. I mean, he's, it, a, he's a scumbag. He's a total scumbag. Yeah, uh, oh, but, but he's he's having a blast. He really is. He's you fun can to tell watch. he's. Oh man, this is his first horror movie. So, so I was, like, I was, first I was about to ask how early in the in his career this. This was. before I mean, Freddie. He had done this. Is, this yeah, this is uh, six years before Freddie. But he had um, he had been primarily a stage actor mm-hmm. prior to this, like Shakespearean. Like Robert England was a legit like up and coming stage actor, and he got tired of the bullshit of the theater. So he's like, if I'm going to deal, if I'm going to deal with political bullshit, I'm going to do it in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. basically his thinking. He's like, yeah, what was the movie he said? Anyway, he, he like, uh, the movies. 
Yeah, he said he like went off to do the theater because he was tired of Hollywood. <laughs> so he decided he was going to devote his life to theater. He was tired of the bullshit. He had done all of the stuff. He was accepted the Royal Academy, blah, blah, blah. So he went into that. And uh, then he was watching Boxcar Bertha. That's what he said. Yeah, like, Scorsese. Yeah. yeah, Scorsese. And he said, he started looking at the credits at the end of the movie. He was like, this is fun. And he's like seeing all his friends he had like had worked on this movie and he's like well god damn it like if i'm gonna be dealing with the same bullshit i'm just gonna go back to holly weird that's his exact yeah. quote like <laughs> i'm just gonna go back there and so he got cast in bertha and billy uh which made a lot of money for uh uh ted mann who that's probably a whole other story but ted mann cast in chinese a, theater yeah he owns a man's Chinese theater bought all the Fox theaters. And uh, he said that Bertha and Billy money made him like a huge deal. Robert England. England's first like starring role, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was his first starring role. Yeah. And uh, Hooper saw that. So like immediately when Robert England walked on set, Hooper knew who he was. Hooper okay. says he knew who he was. It was like, I yeah. know that guy. And he said like, Marty was like, are you sure? And he says, no, this guy is special. This guy is something special about this guy. Like I, I've got to have this guy. Like he just, nice. he just knew it. And uh, Marilyn Burns even talks about it in interviews. It's like how special she felt being on the set with this cast. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, she, she talks about it being a resume killer with Texas Chainsaw, but uh, she was always after attention. She, she, she actually like kind of, I, I swear some of the interviews, she seems like she's kind of reveling a little bit in the controversy that there's a movie that she's in that has created such a discussion, you know? Yeah. So uh, she was excited to work with Hooper and Hinkle again. And so yeah, when yeah, the opportunity sure. came up, she jumped on it and she I talks she about only did one other movie in between. I think she was in Helter Skelter. And I think that's the only other movie she made in between texas chainsaw and this i think you're right and so she she jumped on this and once she said <laughs> she said she tells the story of like what she saw like who all the people she was working with were gonna be it's like these people she's seen all over tv and everything she like called her parents to brag about it, it was like you got to go see this movie and they brought their whole bridge club to come see this movie and she was like of course at that time i was unaware that there was an opening scene that had been added with a brothel the very first very first scene is i'm buck raring to fuck right. and a, a close-up of robert england zipper right exactly she was like so that was interesting but the, uh, but yeah robert england you know at this point he's a guy who's uh you you hear him talking that he, maybe there's a whole robert england series too someday but he's a guy who appreciates old hollywood like he loves it. Oh, he yeah. talks about going to hollywood parties he goes to the old hollywood parties he wants to meet ernest borgnine like he's like i've i could hang out with him like you know he's excited about that stuff so he said he was right around the corner he said i could walk to this place and it's run down studio and i walk in and the first thing i see is this peeling old hotel set and a weird pond and neville brown's like pacing around smoking a cigarette and i'm like fuck yes this is this is it <laughs> this is everything i dreamed of so eating alive went before cameras with a reported budget of six hundred thousand dollars which is 10 times the amount that hooper had for texas chainsaw uh still pretty low budget even for this time uh, much of that budget was reportedly raised on the guarantee of hooper's participation they sold this movie based on his name the guy from texas chainsaw is making this movie unlike chainsaw which was of course as we discussed shot entirely on location 
Eaten Alive was shot entirely on sound stages. Uh, they with Raleigh Studios in Hollywood standing in for Hooper's backwater motel and swamp in this film. And shooting on sound stages wasn't a budgetary concern. This was uh, actually an artistic choice on Hooper's part. He wanted the film to have this false looking feel, this fairy tale, like he describes it as a Wizard of Oz type feel, where it's very clearly this otherworldly. Uh, location that you're in he, he had that back in texas chainsaw you remember i mean it started out as like a hansel and gretel thing right, um, yeah the fairy tale i thing. mean he he has this obsession with he's misunderstood i think is is a big part of and probably how we'll deal with his whole career here as we go into it but he's he views horror as like there's this mix of fantasy in it and so it's not all like straightforward he's not making halloween like he's not even necessarily trying to to scare you in the way that like John Carpenter was trying to scare you. Like he's right. not, he's, 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 he's having fun with it. Like he's, he wants yeah. it to be like a little bit, there's, there's these parts that are like fantastical and funny or like, you should be like, what the hell is happening here? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that I think might have enticed Hooper about this particular story was its setting. Cause if you'll recall, when we, we talked about Hooper's upbringing in our last episode, Hooper's father was in the hotel business. So Hooper grew up on the road a lot in hotels and motels, even spending some time, some parts of his youth in nearby Louisiana. So there, it's very possible that like he's seen some, some seedy looking hotels like the, like the starlight, you know, and that might've had some, maybe not inspiration, but something that kind of drew him to this project. Well, even even Miss Hattie in the brothel, like I mean, he 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 says that was a real place in Austin, like yeah. or, or Southwest. Miss Hattie was a real person, like she yeah, was she like was a, a real person. Yeah. Like he he pulled some real life experience in from yeah. from that stuff. Well, I think a lot. I think a large part of this film's atmosphere, this kind of sleazy feeling of this film, can be attributed to that set, that motel set, which was uh, that was created under the supervision of Hooper and his art director Marshall Reed. It makes me feel like the farmhouse in, in Texas Chainsaw. Like everything looks very lived in. Only in that one, they, they found a, an actual rundown farmhouse and then Bob Burns threw bones on everything, which is amazing. But in this one, they had to create this all from scratch. And you've got these rotting sets, torn wallpaper. You've got water damage on the walls and floors. And like, it, it, it's a really outstanding set, I think. And I think it all contributes to this like dive-like quality of the Starlight Hotel and it's all shot in this weird otherworldly glow of, of primary colors, a lot of red lighting uh, by cinematographer Robert Car uh, Caramico, who, by the way, is another genre vet. He worked on a lot of sleazy exploitation and black exploitation movies all throughout the 1970s. So this guy was well versed in, in this world. And I, I honestly, I really love the look of this movie, even though it's it's deliberately fake looking and i kind of dig that about it yeah i mean when when you watch interviews with him about this thing i mean again he's he's talking about this with the monkey dying in the cage like he's he's talking about i'm trying to think of a way to word this like it feels like he's just operating on a different plane sometimes like i don't know yeah. like you can't get inside his mind necessarily but he he now, does have hooper his, is a um notoriously um internal director as yeah. in like uh, multiple people describe him coming on set and he kind of like like folds in on himself like he's he's not like a very boisterous outspoken director he kind of like internalizes all of his thoughts 
and so then he creates a vision like he creates a vision of what he wants to do with the movie and so like people have drawn it out of him like you'll see in interviews with like uh the monkey dying for instance he talks about the red lighting the red tinge to the lighting he's like solar flares and yeah. weird stuff happening on solar flares i was thinking of this and like uh, he's like i believe that like i, I believe this like there's a there's a weird thing and this monkey just knew it was his time to die and then weird stuff starts happening in solar flares so he's trying to like explain it to you but it's just uh even then it's still like i, I don't know it's hard to explain like it's it's hard well, i to think that you're right i think that he it. just op like you said he operates on a different wavelength you know, and, and sometimes that makes it hard to verbalize those kind of things, but he knows what he's trying to get across. And whether we as the viewer understand that any, there's nothing about solar flares in the movie, but there's something weird going on that well, is sort of unexplainable. Well, it's even like when you talk about a guy like William Finley, you know, who he'd seen in like Phantom of the Paradise and that sort of thing. You know, he, he even describes like him and Marilyn Burns in their scene. He says, I feel bad for Kyle. Uh, the little girl he's like she's plunged into madness uh toby got all these great people together the girl was the girl was having to operate in this den of scoundrels <laughs> like there's like these weird people and we all have different methods and uh he's like and he, he even describes at the time like you don't know exactly what's happening he's like i never knew when i'm searching for my gouged out eyeball on the floor like i never knew exactly what i was doing yeah and uh, kim hinkle like the writer of the movie i think couldn't even explain to him exactly what that was in the script for but he um, said like but, toby kept telling him and we we kind of experienced this a little in texas chainsaw that like toby kept telling him like just go with it it's gonna work like we're gonna we're gonna figure it out like we're gonna yeah. you know and toby because because like even in texas chainsaw remember like he was filming stuff and like those people said everything was just happening and nobody knew like everybody was like kind of off exactly filter what was yeah. yeah but toby knew he it seemed that he was gonna get he was he knew once he had a chance like he just had to film as much stuff as he could and i'll fix it in editing like yeah. i'll i'll make this a movie yeah, like he he knew what his plan was, even if it wasn't apparent to other people. I think some of those things, though, like that that scene in particular with William Finley, his and Marilyn Burns' characters are so fascinating in this movie to me because it's like they it's like they exist in a movie of their own somewhere off screen, where we don't know if there's something very dysfunctional about them. Why is she wearing a disguise when yeah. she arrives? What the fuck is going on with him? It's <laughs> like yeah. that moment where he's like twisting. He's got his arm reached out toward, towards her head and he's like twisting his face. And none of that is explored in the movie, but I think it's purposeful. I think it's supposed to like put the audience off their guard where you're supposed to wonder what in the hell is just going on. It adds to kind of the atmosphere. It's honestly one of my favorite sequences in the movie. Part of that's because I, I just, I love William Finley. I think William Finley is um, oh, he's fantastic. an amazing actor and so fun to watch. And well, and, just, and, and if you watch this movie and you haven't seen anything else and you just watch this, you're going to think he's like a fucking weirdo. But, but I mean, he's not. He, he's, he's very normal. <laughs> he's just doing just what actor. he's directed to do. Yep. Like he's, he's doing what his role requires. Like he's he does just, a bit of commentary on that scene on the Arrow Blu ray. And he's even like, Ooh, that's creepy. What am I doing? Like this is what. <laughs> like <he's, laughs> it's not like he's got some weird reasoning behind it. He's like this. That's what was in the script. But, <laughs> but he even says there. I mean, that's that's one of the points I'm talking about. He says there, like you never felt like 
at the time it was off because Toby would like reassure you that like it's fine, just go with it. Trust we'll, me. That trust me, this will work. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, just like in Texas Chainsaw, I think a big part of the film's atmosphere, because this film, regardless of what you might think of it, you can't deny that it has some pretty stellar atmosphere. A lot of that comes from the sound design. Once again, uh, Toby Hooper and Wayne Bell are credited with the film's music once again. And and it doesn't, even though that it says music by Toby Hooper and Wayne Bell, it doesn't really have a score so much as a series of disconcerting noises. <laughs> uh, much like Texas Chainsaw. I mean, Texas Chainsaw didn't have a traditional film score. And it should also be noted that Wayne Bell is not a composer. He's a, he's a sound effects designer. Uh, so they, they didn't hire a composer. They wanted somebody to come in and create this weird dissident noise, uh, which creates a, a, a just a weird feeling in the movie, you know? And then you've got these weird country songs that Judd is constantly listening to yeah. that are had the weirdest lyrics. And you're like, and that adds just a whole other creepy layer to the film. Like, what is, like, you're in a nightmare. You're in a nightmare in this movie. And I, I talked about that last week on Texas Chainsaw. That's one thing that you're going to see throughout Toby Hooper's filmography, I think, is like, he, he can create the atmosphere of a waking nightmare. That's his goal. That's that, that's what's so weird about it. Like, yeah, he. It's one thing to like direct the actors and to to, to let to tell like a narrative, but he's trying to he's trying to tap into the in the seventies, by the way, which like later you're going to see a lot of in in Hollywood now. I think it's a pretty popular thing people try to do is like they try to lean into like oh well a lot of it's the atmosphere, a lot of it's the yeah how it feels how the well movie that's why feels. things like that William Finley scene, which logically don't make a lot of sense. Cause you don't, you're, it's just kind of dropped in, but that's that nightmare logic, that dream logic. Like it doesn't have to make sense. Sometimes in your dreams, things just happen and they're weird and they don't necessarily make sense when you go back and think about them, but that's kind of what's happening all throughout this movie. Yeah. That's a, I think there's an alligator. <laughs> yeah. That's <is> true. <laughs> <laughs> what looks like, an inflatable alligator? We're going to talk well, about that well, alligator. We'll talk about yeah, that alligator. Like, we are going <laughs> to get to the alligator, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Eden Alive was not to be the sophomore success that Hooper was hoping for. In fact, Toby Hooper left the production before filming was complete because he was clashing with, with producers, specifically with Marty Rustom. Uh, it's unclear exactly what those creative differences were. Uh, but some reports say that Marty Rustum requested more nudity in the film and Hooper had no intention of taking the movie in the direction of softcore pornography. Other reports say that Rustum saw the film as a comedy while Hooper view it, viewed it as more serious. And that's one that one's a little harder for me to believe based on some of the other films in Hooper's filmography. I, I feel like Hooper would have probably leaned more into the comedic aspects of it. I would all, honestly almost see it as being the other way around. Yeah, I mean, Hooper's never been like obsessed with. I, well, we talked about last week. He he was he had like ideas that Texas Chainsaw was a comedy. So right, like, exactly. he's not so. he's not obsessed with being too serious, being overly but, serious. But no, no, like I I definitely found interviews on YouTube and such where he talks a little bit about how uh, you know there 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 were ideas from producers that like that their kids start showing up on set. Like he was just like, I just want to get to a movie. The The story he tells actually is that like, he didn't know at the time, like he was doing it as a gun for hire, 
he was doing this movie and he just needed a job. He needed to get to Hollywood. He needed a job. He had it. And so he was going to do it his way. They agreed to let him work on it his way. And then all of a sudden, the producers start stepping in. Producers start telling him how to do things like, no, we should do this. We want to add this to the script, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, it's not till I walked. Like I started, he was like, I let, I think he said he like tried to leave a couple of times. And, uh, and then finally there was a Japanese journalist on set that was a well-respected film critic in Japan that was on set a lot. And he sat down for an interview with him one day and he was talking to this guy and uh, forgive me, I don't have his name, but he said the guy mentioned to him that the reason that Marty Russum like, was able to get this financing, the financing that they had, was because they had attached Toby Hooper to this movie. And Toby Hooper's like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. so the only reason so this make it a Toby getting, Hooper movie, yeah. So he's like, the only so I'm like bowing to like all these different directives from this producer, and like the only reason this movie's happening is because I'm the one directing it, right? And uh, so finally, he's like, one day they just like were came in and were like, no, we're doing it this way or something. And he's just like, fuck you, like I'm out, like yeah. I'm, I'm leaving, and he walked out, and it was just like to hear him talk about it it's just like no it's just like every day it was just like somebody's like uh we gotta blow that croc's head off with like it swallows a grenade or something you know <laughs> like it's like he's just like there's always the producer's kids have ideas and there's like constant like other stuff and he's just like he's like fuck this like i'm not i'm not doing i can't like i can't yeah. do this well the fact that remains that hooper did not finished the film so instead rustum and editor michael brown reportedly director directed the remainder of the shoot a actress uh carolyn jones even apparently directed a few scenes here's what robert england told fangoria magazine about it uh when, when he was asked about it he said toby left that movie under rather unpleasant circumstances they raised close to a half million dollars on his name alone in japan yet they pestered him more and more they violated his sense of rhythm i got along terrifically with these people talking about the producers but of all things you need to pester toby about he's going to deliver you have to let him delve into things his own way it was so disappointing when he left the project yeah and the scenes that rustum ended up directing added some of the sleaze and nudity that he wanted hooper to feature like that opening scene with uh with Buck and Robert England and the prostitute, that was something that Rustum directed. And some of the later scenes with Janice Blythe, if you listen to her in interviews, like she was really looking forward to working with Toby Hooper. And then she gets there and Marty Rustum's directing the scene. Toby Hooper had already left. Yeah, some of that Marty Rustum stuff was also, um, it was uh, Robert Carmico, who was like a cameraman. And uh, yeah, yeah. He, he was a good buddy of uh, Marty Rustum, who apparently, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, the story there is, is like, he had recommended somebody because Marty Rustum was trying to make this like low budget independent movie. So he had recommended a cameraman and uh, as they got like a decent bit into production, it was just too slow to hear Toby Hooper talk about it. They, they were used to like cameras that moved faster and uh, they had uh, the ability to like get around quicker and catch different shots. That wasn't the case here. They had the, uh, uh, I think I even saw like William Finley talked about they had like this Hulk of a camera that was like on a track, like running around and like that sort of thing. And so Marty Russell had told uh, Caramico about 
like, man, this guy's not fast enough. Like it's, it's not working. And so Karamiko is like, well, I've been between projects. I'll just come in. And he did it. And then the union, he was a union guy and the union tried to stop him. They like showed up on set one day, uh, according to Russell. And they're like, you can't do this. Like it's uh it's not a union project. And like, it wasn't set up through the union projects. And he's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm helping my buddy out. They were like, well, that's not part of the union and said Robert Karamika like tore up his union card right in front of him and threw it on the crown and was like well wow. fuck you I won't be a part of the union I'm just gonna I'm gonna help my friend out with his movie and uh said he later got reinstated into the union because he was a pretty popular uh cameraman so yeah they couldn't do it yeah. but yeah but yeah when Hooper was gone like he was he was also a part of that that like filming and stuff and yeah like you said uh June like she was disappointed she didn't get to work with hooper that was like part of the reason she signed up so while we're talking about the filming of this movie there are a couple of other key people that i think we just need to mention uh the first is makeup artist craig reardon uh, or at least credited makeup artist craig reardon apparently uh he is mostly just there in credit only uh did you did you listen to his commentary on the arrow blu-ray gary Sure did. Yeah. He is a, he likes to talk. He's an entertainer. He, he has so many stories. Guy. He seems like he'd be a great interview because he just he, like he, really he has does. like in-depth analysis about yeah. everything about a film. So apparently they had hired another guy to do the makeup on this movie and they didn't like the work that this guy was doing. So they hired Craig Reardon. Craig Reardon shows up in the set and the other guy's like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> so so the other guy who I don't think they ever name, I don't think they ever name him. Uh, in that interview or in that in that commentary but he apparently did most of the actual work on the film i think the only thing that craig reardon says that he really did was one time this other guy was out to lunch and they needed somebody to put makeup on uh janice Blythe's boobs for her scene with robert <laughs> england well he describes that but he also talks about um uh Oh, what's her face? Uh, Carolyn Jones. Like he says, he, he admits like her makeup on her face. He was like, I know that she looks odd, but that was like instructed, like piling it on. I feel like I've seen yeah. some stuff with him that like, they used mortician's wax, I think on her, which mortician's wax is usually just used for like in little bits, you know, mm. like, like um, do it like a, a fold, phony nose or whatever. And for some reason, they decided to cake it all on Carolyn Jones. So, and that makeup effect is pretty bad, but I think it's kind of, I guess it's, it was intentional. Like he was instructed to do that. So um, I don't know. It's, it's weird, but cause why hire Carolyn Jones if you're going to hide her under that makeup, but completely hide her face. Yeah. Like people. Won't yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Carolyn Jones is, I mean, like I said, she wasn't very old at this time. She was in her late forties and she was still a beautiful woman, but they made her look like a fucking ghoul in this movie. <laughs> well, maybe but, it's because uh, but, the, the life that she had led uh, sort of sucked her dry of, you know, of her life force. So she Maybe, but looks, she definitely looks she like looks she's older, cracked like a husk, like there's not much. She looks like a member of the Sawyer inside. family from Texas Chainsaw, and she's just wearing <laughs> someone else's face. That's what she looks like. Yeah. That's, but the, that's only, the I, best I description to mention, I could have come up with. <laughs> I wanted to mention Craig Reardon because this was Reardon's first film as, as accredited makeup effects artist. But that's notable to mention because this guy, he would work on some pretty legendary productions. He worked on Altered States. He worked on The Twilight Zone, the movie. He uh, Later on in his career, like he did um, the remake of 13 Ghosts, you know, like he did, which has some really, I don't really care for that movie. It's got some really great makeup effects. No, no, no. Uh, the effects would, in that movie are uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And he would also he, collaborate. 
uh, with Hooper again on the Funhouse and on Poltergeist. He he respects like Hollywood history too. The one thing I appreciate about it, I, I, like we're we're kind of picking on him about like how much he loves to talk and stuff. But it's like clearly he's like a nerd he's a like great us. Character. Yeah, yeah, like he's he's just a nerd like we are yeah. about like he cares about like the studio this takes place in like Raleigh Studio. Talking about it was a producer studio before, and it was like john ford was like filming or like you know was there and a lot uh, of corman movies those edgar a lot of corman movies like yeah. all of his edgar Allan poe movies were filmed there and like and so so like he obviously like and he's pretty young cares. around this time like 22 23 i i think when they, he made this movie uh, but but he would go on to create like the makeup effects for sloth and the goonies like that was craig reardon he, he nice. uh he created all of the makeup effects for like the villains in and warren Beatty's dick tracy and then he also did some notable work on TV series. He did a few episodes of The X-Files, a few episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And most notably, he did quite a few episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I, you know, I, I love, I love, you know, I I have a kind of a love-hate thing for, for Deep Space Nine. I love it because it is part of the Star Trek canon, but, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's not as exciting as the rest of the ser- different series, but... I will what say the that the, the, say? a lot of the, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, the guy who's currently covering Enterprise on his podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, <wait. laughs> well, I, what I'm, what I was gonna say is that the prosthetic work on those later shows, like Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, are just phenomenal. And I'm sure, um, you know this. Uh, you know, this guy had uh, quite a quite a big hand. You know, Craig Reardon had a big uh, big hand in that. He talks about like even with uh, uh, like the death of uh, what's his face, uh, William Finley. Uh, just the idea that no, was it William Finley or was it Farrar? I think it, who who got the scythe through the neck? That was Farrar. That's Farrar. Yeah, Farrar. yeah, yeah. William Finley got stabbed in the chest. Mm. Yeah, he was talking about how much of a trooper like Farrar was with just like he was like. No, like Cooper wanted that scythe goes through his neck. Like we've got to make this work, and so they put like five pounds of wax in his neck with like a slit for the scythe. So the scythe is like going, like going through his neck. He was like he had to limbo to set, and then you know, <laughs> like it was just he was he was like he was such a trooper, just just taking that, like it just he wanted the scythe to be actually going through this guy's neck oh wow so another guy that i want to mention is robert maddie uh he's the guy responsible for the crocodile special effect so th- regardless of what you think of the crocodile effect in this uh, <laughs> robert maddie is a uh, a guy we got to talk about uh, unlike reardon this was not an entry level movie for maddie he'd been working in the industry since the 1950s when he'd worked on the special effects for disney films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Absent-Minded Professor, Mary Poppins. Uh, he was also one of the designers of the, of the Disneyland Jungle Cruise ride. Like, this guy was a, a veteran. Uh, mm-hmm. His film prior to Eaten Alive, like his film that he did just before Eaten Alive, was with Toby Hooper's future boss, a gentleman named Steven Spielberg, on a little movie called Jaws, where he helped to create the shark, nice. uh, and which is how he got this job. Although, turns out, they had a lot less money than Universal <laughs> to create this uh, <laughs> this alligator. And his final film was as a special effects supervisor uh, before his retirement came, which was just his film just after Eaten Alive in 1978, and it was Jaws 2. Uh, 
but the the alligator in this, I mean, it was it's pretty low tech. I mean, Hooper describes it as like those little duck uh, toys where like the little feet flop around, like when you roll it. You know, that was the extent <laughs> of the effects in this. Uh, and it was a whole alligator. It was covered in you know foam latex or whatever. It could barely move, and so you'd, so you'd have to have a guy just off screen, like just kind of shaking it <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> Uh, one time they left the somebody actually left the thing in the tank overnight and this foam latex absorbed all of the water and the thing oh, was like five no. times its normal size oh. <laughs> but that much like the shark in jaws the alligator in this movie or the, the nile crocodile according to a judd did not work it like it looked, was supposed to <laughs> it looked like to me it looked like there was one that was just shy of like an inflated balloon then there was one for like the close-ups and the texture on the, on the back of it. I think some of I those think... shots are actual an actual alligator. Some of the oh really? Shots. Okay. And then yeah. there, there there are shots of actual alligators or crocodiles that they use. Like they went to a um, Marty well, Rustin third... describes like they went to a zoo and like they were oh, okay. like we want to do what Jaws did. We want to get some actual footage of the thing, and so we went to the zoo. And and uh, they were like, they just like croc crocodiles and alligators and stuff just kind of sit there. Like they don't really do anything. <laughs> yeah. He was just in there kind of just like blobs, like just hang out. And he's like, and then the guy is like telling us like, well, you got to throw some pork or some meat or something in there. And then dogs and cats. Go for that. Dogs yeah, and cats. Dogs and, cats. <laughs> and he's like, well, so finally we come back and he's like, I got some meat. So like, we'll throw some meat in there. And he's like, so we got a few of those where they're like, you know, so there's some, some times it cuts in and it is an actual crocodile like wow. going after the meat. But he was like, for the most part, they're just kind of chill like all the time. <laughs> like it's not until they're just like hungry. They only feed every so often. And they're just like, now's the, third... the time we're going to kill something. He's <laughs> yeah. like, you got to time that like perfectly. When it's <laughs> crawling under the house after the little girl, it looks like someone <laughs> just sort of put stuff Scooted on their it. arm and just like it doesn't even look like that. it looks like somebody just scoot like pushed it yeah <laughs> just pushed the puppet. <laughs> well to hear uh, like william finley talk about it he was just like man he was like so into it but uh he, he was just like yeah i don't know he, he's just like describing it as like i'm doing all the work there the croc going through the fence and getting me like that whole scene took years they tried yeah. pushing it and rolling it they finally got the mouth open which took forever and then he's like i just kind of pushed myself into the mouth and it was just like it's like belly against in the it. ed wood movie like fighting the octopus you know <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so despite leaving the film hooper did maintain good relationships with his actors as we mentioned he would go on to work with england again uh, several more times and the film was still released with his name on it in 1976 but it didn't really do much. It quickly disappeared from theaters only to be re-released again and again under various titles. It didn't make any money under any of the titles, regardless of how many times it was retitled and re-released. And the audience, the film never really caught on with audiences or critics. Even modern critics are kind of divided on it. It's not like what the case of some of these films we talk about where people look back on it and have reevaluated it. That's not exactly the case with Eaten Alive. Some see it as they still see it as kind of a sophomore slump for Toby Hooper, while others see it as a fittingly nightmarish follow-up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, but I am curious what Gary had to, was able to find in his research on some, uh, some modern-day internet critics. 
Oh man, well you know somebody somebody went on Amazon Prime and watched this movie for free, and uh, they got to bitch about it on the internet. They got real unhappy that they saw it, and uh, as per usual, somebody needs a nap. Uh, Richard Jensen here says, what? I was just going to say, Hey, let's be gentle. It sounds like these might be my people. (laughs) No, I I assume I'm going to assume Todd is all of these people. Uh, (laughs) If you send them to me, should I just, I I was just literally sitting here. I was like, I should have sent them to Todd. Like he can just read them. Even like, for instance, Richard Jensen here says, even for a prime free movie, your time is not free. And this pathetic offering is a horror movie. Only insofar as it is horribly made. <laughs> Horrible acting. Horrible scenes. Early on, a girl is supposed to walk right down the road to the Starlight Motel, but the next scene has her wandering around barefoot in the woods. She just happens to stumble upon the starlight. She then claims to have gotten lost. Did I mention horrible acting? It's on full display here. How do you get lost walking down the road and end up in the deep woods? And how do you then just happen to stumble upon the starlight? Horrible storyline. I could go on and on. Every aspect of the film is pathetic. For the record, though, Richard Jensen seems to have only watched the first like 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> there, there's like, etc. being too many instances to mention and there's etc like i can't think of anything else so i'll just say etc yeah uh uh, let's see here this is uh from who'd have thought it the lost toby hooper film whoever rediscovered this should be flogged it's not even classy <laughs> trash like Hooper's old Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I can forgive a lot of low-budget B-flick, but this pointless film doesn't even register on the watchability scale. The trailer for this film tries to cash in on the success of Jaws by comparing this slot to it. This is how I would write the script for the trailer of Eatin' Alive. Endure an agonizingly slow 89 minutes of Judd mumbling incoherently and mostly unintelligible in his ramblings. Watch an ambivalent indifference, scene after scene, that has neither a foundation nor leads anywhere. Experience the monotony of 32 scenes of a little girl crawling in circles over and over underneath a porch. This DVD should be on clearance. And even then, it wouldn't be considered a bargain unless you had a 75% off coupon. Even if you like cheesy but classy B-flicks, stay away from this completely inane film that will make you want to reach for the eject button long before the halfway point. And then one more, I've got Speechless saying absolute garbage. The reason this movie has 20 alternate titles is because Toby Hooper and the film's distributors wanted to combat the terrible word of mouth that would inevitably arise once the film was shown to unsuspecting audiences. That's how bad this movie is. Even its creators were ashamed of it. Don't ask me what Toby Hooper was thinking with this movie. One of these days, I'll track him down and I'll ask him about it. Probably not. Hey, Toby. (laughs) Why did you think we wanted to see a movie with Robert England as a sodomy-obsessed nutcase in a filthy, run-down hotel with an obvious psychopath for the proprietor and a random fake-looking alligator? Maybe Hoover was drunk on the success of Texas Chainsaw. Maybe he was just drunk. I don't know. 
But this seriously has to be one of the worst, most unbearable films of all time. In Texas Chainsaw, you could sort of believe what was going on. Here we have what is probably the worst, least inviting hotel on the planet, but somehow people keep showing up and checking in. Are you people crazy? Just freaking look at that place. And look at the crazy guy with the scythe who runs it. And look at the giant alligator in the disease swamp out front. Gee, honey, this place looks nice. For some reason, the sky is red throughout almost the entire film. Is this on Mars? <laughs> that is, uh, that's the last one I got. <laughs> Todd. Yes. Um, thoughts? <laughs> um, okay. Because I was watching you while Gary was reading that. You were like nodding in agreement pretty much the entire time yes i wrote all these reviews yes (laughs) gary happened to pick every one of my reviews i well because again this is a discussion i had with with my wife was like i really don't want to be the debbie downer here i will say i'm going to (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to anyway buckle up folks here we go i think uh i enjoyed or uh, i appreciated the more flushed out characters i feel more flushed out characters of this as opposed to chainsaw i man (laughs) i i i hear you that he wanted it to feel otherworldly and that may have come across with the not subtle at all red light uh shining on the place for good portion of the film but the fact that he went the route of studio as opposed to an actual location made again, because I didn't know any of the background for that. It felt cheaper to me, even though they had 10 times the budget, it felt cheaper. It's weird. So it's like way more claustrophobic, which I feel like could sort of be the idea. Yeah. Um, And I think there, I think Texas Chainsaw was like actually in Texas, like open, it just right it 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 felt it 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 cheapened it a little bit i think there's probably a different way to do it clearly toby hooper is somebody with a vision um and with a med excuse me with a method to his madness i just question how well he conveys the conveys that to the audience because the fact that it was like the solar flare thing i found that really fascinating I didn't get that from watching the movie. Yeah, but to me, I don't think you necessarily need to have that information. Like, I feel, and, and I'm not going to pretend like this movie entirely works. I, I will say it off the, off, off the bat. I think that there are aspects of this movie that work well, which I'll get into, and other aspects that don't. I think the um, the thing that Toby Hooper does so well in this and, and does so well in Texas Chainsaw is that he creates like I mentioned before, this this feeling of being in a waking nightmare. I think the staginess of the setting adds to that. I think the lighting adds to that, the visual style. I think the sound adds to that. And it's not as successful here, I don't think, as it is in Texas Chainsaw. Uh, but there are some weird little bits that make this feel like a, like truly unique. Although you also have to wonder, since Hooper left this film early, how much of that is his doing? Like, are the fil- film's wild tonal shifts intentional, or are they the result of multiple filmmakers having their hands on the film? Yeah. You know, because the film does kind of veer into 
some comedic stuff and then some very very dark shit like the opening with buck is very very dark yeah. i mean i i love the the opening line the buck is raring to fuck but that scene is very hard to watch and that's the first scene in the movie and we know that's not one that hooper directed we know that marty rustum directed that scene he's ready so to, you, he's ready to rape that girl like he's, he's yeah that's exactly to, yeah, yeah yeah and granted he it's not exactly portrayed in a great light late, later or anything. So he gets his comeuppance. It's sort of like they almost try to turn him into a hero for a minute. Then he immediately just gets eaten by a fucking crocodile. Uh, so he's kind of a shitty guy the whole movie. So it's not as if it's problematic in that way. But yeah, he's the the, the film starts with an incredibly mean-spirited scene that was not Toby Hooper's. But Toby Hooper does get mean-spirited sometimes. Mm. Uh, well, he, but, he does, but he also has this like... Uh, the side of him that seems to be like kind of goofy or like poking fun at things like like for instance like the bar scene uh, like where there's that slap fight between the two guys like, what yeah, the yeah. fuck was he the guy in the cowboy there? hat by the way the guy in the cowboy hat in that scene is um, Kit Carson's brother okay <laughs> they like literally like slap each other in the face and it just amounts to nothing yeah. and it's like Buck is almost like a knowing that the first scene is not directed by Toby Hooper. Buck is pretty ineffectual otherwise. Like he's just yeah. a horn dog. Like he's yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's the most uh is malevolent the right word? Like uh like just evil that Buck is is at the beginning. Like where he's Yeah, he's just mostly gonna, just a goober and a redneck later on. Right, yeah. right. He's just kind of a goop yeah like it, it just i don't know so like you can tell that those are are sort of two different things now i'll jump in and say that todd uh i'm not gonna sit here and pretend that i loved this movie the first time i saw it either i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna act like i i thought it was fantastic it's not some the, lost masterpiece yeah the the benefit I have with Todd being here, I think sometimes is that I feel, I don't know why, but having the third, having Todd be here and like be the surrogate, I feel more inclined to like research and just delve into it. I did fall in love with this movie. Like I, I did, but I've seen this movie over the past week, multiple times. Like I've seen it once legit what's with the commentary like with criticism like with interviews and stuff and like delving into the minds of the people behind it like something about that sort of made me appreciate what this is and and, right. and so i have to say that like on one hand you have to appreciate like how much somebody put into it or what they were thinking or what they were going for at the time and like really understanding the artists. On the other hand, you have to take a movie and be like, if you were just like walking in on a Friday night and this is the movie you picked, yep. would you be into this movie? Right. I don't know that this movie would have been that like it, right. it is. No, I, I will say everybody involved, I think seemed to understand that they were making a grindhouse movie. Like, I don't think yeah, there were any even including Toby Hooper. There. Yeah, even Toby Hooper. So I don't think there were misconceptions there. I think they were going for like just a... They wanted to make something that would be a fun night at the drive-in. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I guess on that point, yeah, it works, but would it have been standout? I don't know. I don't. I still don't know that it would have been standout. I mean, if, if Toby Hooper had made this movie 
first, if this had been like his first movie and not Texas Chainsaw, would we be still be talking about Toby Hooper? Probably not. Uh, right. Because I, I, while I do feel like there are elements of this movie that feel very Toby Hooper-esque, if you have watched his later movies, th- there's a lot to be desired in this depiction. Like there are definitely moments, like if you've seen some later Hooper movies, especially like I think Texas Chainsaw 2, you can definitely see notes of that film style here. You've got characters like Buck and Judd that feel like Toby Hooper characters, these like outsized Texans, you know, that feel like, or, or something that you see throughout his filmography. And Neville Brand's Judd doesn't feel like a far cry from Leatherface, only he's got a scythe instead of a chainsaw. He almost feels like a lost member of the Sawyer family. Like he feels like the one that, because he feels like a combination of like Leatherface and the hitchhiker almost, like, you know? Yeah. Uh, And like, he's the one who left home and ended up opening a motel down the the road. He's the successful (laughs) one of the family, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe, maybe Marilyn Burns, after she got away from Leatherface, she changed her identity. That's why she's wearing a wig and... <laughs> she there you go. This. I'm creating my own backstory to this, by the way. I, honestly, I was just sitting here honestly, thinking, I was I'm like, into did it. you read something I didn't read? Like, because that, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that makes sense. Like, I could buy that. All and right. This, this is the, what, what we're recording right now is the start of Justin's fan fiction career. This is going to be him just going off and telling <laughs> All right. stories between the stories. <laughs> yeah. Sally just like fucking put on a wig and she got yeah. away. She's in hiding. She, She's in like, it's like a, a what is it called? Witness protection yep right she's like hanging out at this hotel in louisiana just like right down the road (laughs) and it's run by judd sawyer uh the the, uh member of the sawyer family i don't think they're even called the sawyer family until texas chainsaw 2 but that's what i keep referring to them as but neville brand in particular i think of this is super fun to watch like he is insane and i don't know how much of it is performance and how much of it is just neville brand being actually insane Mm. but he's all like lanky like limbs flailing everywhere and these incoherent ramblings and he's a really interesting character i think a really interesting guy to watch and toby hooper puts these little moments in where like one one that always stands out is the one where he's in his room alone like listening to music or singing and he's going through these and trying on um like eyeglasses he's trying on glasses which you know are probably glasses that he's taken from people that he's killed but he's almost seems to, he's not like really reveling in them as souvenirs. He's just kind of bored because he lives out in a swamp by himself in a motel that on this particular night has seen like five people check into. And that's probably his busiest night in the last year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's because they, they read the Yelp review. <laughs> well, and you know, and last we talked about how Leatherface seems to be like, what the fuck are these people like just coming into my house? Like, you know, right. and killing them because of that. Whereas brand doesn't even have that. Cause it's a motel. Like you, people are supposed to come here and, but he just can't help himself. And uh, like it's, he, he gets in like this murderous rampage for seemingly no reason other than the fact that he's just a crazy person. And there are some mutterings about him possibly being like impotent, you know? So there's a more of a sexual element to this than, chainsaw which had no sexual element at all like marilyn burns was not seen as a sexual object by anyone in the sawyer family in that movie she was just meat you know Uh, whereas in this one judd does have a little bit of like a frustration with being being uh, supposedly impotent Mm. there is not one thing in this film justin that is not real about judd 
Like every story <laughs> you hear, every woman, Neville Brand, uh, yeah, Neville Brand. Every female on the set of this movie talks about being frightened by Neville Brand, like they yeah, were terrifying. That he him. went into legit lunatic rage and was swinging at them. Kyle Richards, as the little girl, she literally said, "Quote: I wasn't acting. I had never seen a man like that, and I felt like he was going to kill me." I don't know what my mother was thinking. I will never get over the image of him with the scythe. Yeah. <laughs> like she's Jeez. a scary dude. Yeah. Like she, her mom finally stepped in on the part where they wanted her to be under the dock with the live rats. And like, she was like, mom, I can't be under here with the live rats. And like the mom was like, no, we're not doing the live rats. I think they got so like they, a makeup girl or something. They got right? the makeup girl to be under that, uh, under the dock, which they, like, they did something similar in Texas chainsaw, which we didn't, touch on last week but there's a scene where marilyn burns's character where sally jumps out of a window and she didn't want to do that understandably so they got the makeup girl to put on a blonde wig and that's why you can tell it's someone in a wig in that it's not a stunt person though it's just the makeup girl who was willing to jump through a window <laughs> from like a second story uh so so there's a history of makeup girls just on toby hooper movies just doing uh doing some weird stunt work say what you will i mean kyle richard's like when you hear her talk about it, she's just like nobody it wasn't like cut and everybody was cool. Everybody was method. Yeah. <laughs> like she was, was like a creepy set to be on. Uh. Yeah, she was like it was super weird. She was like it almost made me not want to act anymore. Like I had only ever seen friendly people on like sets of things. She's like he she she says about Neville Brad like he gave me nightmares for a long time. It was solemn and just everything you see about him imagine being chased by this guy like she well, said that it kind was of legit she said like on halloween like somebody asked her in the interview like what about halloween and she was like that was like playing she was like there were yeah. other kids on set like jamie yeah. lee curtis jamie was lee the curtis sweetest person yes. <laughs> she was like i played cards with michael myers <laughs> she was like this movie felt like a nightmare every yeah. single day well and the thing is there aren't any like likable people in this story really that, mm. that's the thing is like you say everyone's method but everyone's method in playing kind of an unlikable character like every single person uh i mean there you you have like some characters are a little more sympathetic like um for uh, ferrer and his daughter who I, the actress name escapes me uh, who who's come with them like they're a little more sympathetic but they're not they're never quite likable like he's still pretty rude and she's kind of cold you know mm. but there are elements of this movie that work you know and there's elements of this movie that don't work i, I don't think it's edited particularly well like we talked about how strong the editing was in texas chainsaw but again hooper by the time this was being edited he is uh he's not he involved out. Yeah. He's not involved. So he didn't have any say in that, you know? And I, I do think that the, the sound, that industrial sound design works incredibly well in this. I love the, if you want to call it the score or whatever you want to call it, but the sound design of this movie, I think is really outstanding. The film's visual style feels like nothing else out there, honestly. I mean, whether you think the staginess of the setting works or not, it's unique. It doesn't feel like anything else. Uh, it, it, and the thing is, it's hard to discuss this movie without immediately comparing it to Texas Chainsaw because this is his follow-up. This is the movie he made right after that. Yeah. This is everyone who saw this movie and they saw the trailer, which the trailer prominently says, 
from Toby Hooper, who brought you the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Everyone's going to be comparing this to that movie, and it just can't stand up to that. It, it honestly just can't. I mean, and it is, it's almost like Hooper was intentionally trying to do as much different in this as he mm. could. Like, oh, Texas Chainsaw is all on location. This one's all on a set. Texas Chainsaw is all almost entirely in, in daylight. This movie is entirely set at twilight. Mm. And the, Texas Chainsaw was bloodless. This movie's not. This movie's got a guy getting a scythe through his neck. Yeah. The things that you could compare, I would say, are that like there is clearly a connection in that um, he does seem to care about who his killers are. Like he, yeah. uh, I mean, as far as like you spend They're definitely some time full, with Judd, fully realized characters. Yeah. Like, and, and that's something, like I mentioned before, that, uh, you know, was mentioned earlier. It's like part of the deal with Hooper and Hinkle is like, expounding on the character of judd like they it could have been just a killer croc movie if they wanted judd to be like a character they wanted like more depth to the croc honestly does only kills like one person (laughs) yeah i mean it 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 gets judd and it gets uh finley i think well i think the only person well finley had already been finley had been stabbed with a pitchfork already yeah so most most people are either dead or on their way out buck buck gets eaten i think he's the only one that actually gets eaten alive he's like alive and he's like swimming and trying to grab <laughs> he's the, the only one that actually like, gets eaten alive just like there's not really much of a chainsaw massacre in the texas chainsaw massacre right, right. only franklin gets killed by the te- by the chainsaw yeah yeah oh so, yeah it's weird i mean they, they call it that but no you're 100 right i mean I, I i just think i there is this aspect of trying to understand the killer that uh yeah you know that that like he obviously cares about but like you said i mean by the time this movie is finished it's clearly not not what he intended um i found not entirely yeah and, and and i found this one thing from toby hooper like uh like he said uh i accepted this early on i was making a grindhouse film this is way after this is like one of his later interviews he says but this is a, a unique collection of madness a slice of something I don't think that you can get anywhere else. This thing isn't like most cult films. It's as crazy as the process making it was. I'm happy for it. I'm happy that it's out there. Yeah. I, I love that <laughs> on the Arrow Blu-ray, there's a little introduction by Hooper that you can watch before the film. And he bar- he, he just says like, I hope you enjoy the colors. <laughs> <laughs> no no he is he's that way i'm like, like finley finley talks about like we, we made a friendship he was like but this is just toby like he he yeah. just he just disappears like at the time of the arrow blu-ray like he's just like he was like he i was hitting up he, toby like trying to reach him about like are you doing the commentary thing for this movie no i could find him he was like he wouldn't answer like he, yeah. he just would not respond he's like i couldn't even find like his for certain address like he's yeah. like toby just kind of was like out like it just wow i don't know so toby just movie, seemed like you know later on like in his interviews that you can find about it it's just kind of like i'm glad it's out there like, yeah you know not not super it was wild here it is <laughs> well but, the movie you know is, i got nothing else for you <laughs> it's like violent enough and and by today's standards and i feel like even standards of horror movies that will come later in the 80s it doesn't seem that gory and stuff you know uh but it was there was enough 
fake blood and caro syrup covering people in this movie and enough gore that it actually landed on the UK's video nasty list. Uh, even after cuts were made to appease the sensory board. Wow. And it wasn't actually released uncut by the British Board of Film Classification until 2000, which was 23 years after its release. And only like, that was only a year after Texas Chainsaw had been released uncut in the UK. While the film is violent, I mean, there are obviously worse offenders over the years. And I have to wonder if there was more than just the gore that affected the BBFC's decision on that you know like i have to feel like if this feeling of discomfort brought on by the sound design and the visuals this like nauseating seasick feeling that you get from that stuff like imagine watching this on the big screen with really a really loud sound system like that would be incredibly disorienting which is exactly what hooper was going for and i have to wonder if that informed their decision to put this on the video nasties list because it's really not i mean it's gory but it's not that gory it's really i swear to god like i mean this is going to be the testament to like toby hooper like all the way like maybe i don't know at least early on is that he's going for like a surreal like experience he's going that's what he's going for he's not like going for like a straightforward narrative he's going for like driving you into like feeling something like just the emotional aspect of it that's what he's concerned with and uh his most successful might always i don't know we're gonna see we're gonna see as we go on but like his most successful might be the texas chainsaw massacre because it's just the one that that lasted i mean like even here there's we can rip apart all day the narrative of the story and like the weirdness of it, but it did, it obviously impacted somebody somewhere that they put it on the video nasties and there's like, yeah. 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 And there's not this so so much stuff. It's like constantly when Texas chainsaw was out, even uh, Joe Bob and like it is, uh, reporting on on the texas chainsaw massacre had this he's like there was not one article you could read about the texas chainsaw that didn't misconstrue something that happened actually in the movie like it was just like they all it was like they all saw something that didn't happen like it was just like he he obviously at least impacted you in such a way that you think you saw or heard or felt something that you didn't actually see like that was like part of his goal so he was successful in that way and i think he was going for that again here like there were these things he was just like trying to make you internalize like some kind of uh, something to connect you with this film that wasn't like i'm just watching a movie but like it's more psychological almost right I mean, so much like texas chainsaw i think eaten alive has this notion of and this this kind of goes into what you're saying there's this notion of there's this insanity this insane world existing just on the outskirts of normality right like if you stray off the wrong path if you're you go to the wrong farmhouse occupied by the wrong family or you go to the wrong motel run by the wrong dude you could die you could just run across a crazy person and you're done you know (laughs) like and that's that's a that's a kind of interesting a continuation of that theme that this movie has from Texas Chainsaw, even though the movies seem aesthetically so dissimilar. You know, going back to the to the sound design, because I was really trying to think of like how I felt by what I was hearing. And the thing that stuck out to me the most, and this I don't usually grab onto things like this, but uh the little girl's scream from underneath the house. I don't know if you guys felt about she's a great felt- screamer. 
it felt like a punch. Like, yeah. like that's the only weapon she's got. And you can even kind of see it in her face where she's just like, ah, like, like, yeah. like using that to sort of hit him with something, anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just really made me feel like that was all that she had. And that was the way that they designed, you know, or structured or, you know, cut up or adjusted her scream in post was to make her scream sort of punch and yeah. like really hit you know who she's screaming at but also to punch the audience i, I that's oh, yeah. what i got so out. if i could say todd to what you're saying like william finley literally uh this is this is an exact quote from william finley i had aside he said kyle was plunged into madness toby got great people but they were all so different this girl was in this den of scoundrels weird mom ineffectual dad madman with a crock somehow she did it she had the most ear splitting scream all you had to do is point at her i don't know uh that this was part of what toby saw uh or why he hired her but like he he said he, he goes on to describe he's just like this somehow when you pointed at this girl her scream was perfect like yeah. it was it was yeah. everything you ever wanted out of like a horror movie scream that's, that's awesome. awesome so this is the part of the show where i want to get into some stuff that uh you might watch as a second part of a double feature with this movie we call this so one that i want to mention personally uh, there's a few I, my, my mind goes immediately to other killer croc movies just because it feels easy yeah, because there's a killer croc in this movie, even though it's not that great of a killer croc. But if I'm thinking killer croc movies, the first one that I always seem to think of is uh, Greg McLean's Rogue from 2007, the Australian horror movie. Greg well, McLean's really the good. guy who did. He's the guy who did um, Wolf Creek, and he's done some other movies mm. since then. But I, it's, a, it's one that a lot of people haven't seen that I think is very, very good. Personally, yeah, yeah I was going to say I'm not, I'm not super familiar with that one. It, I think it came straight to video in the U.S. Mm. Doesn't it have Chris Hemsworth? It does have Chris Hemsworth before yeah, he yeah. came to Hollywood. Uh, yeah, when he was still working in Australia. It's, what, it's an earlier film of his. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Gary, did you have any further viewings on this one? Well, I mean, I'm going to be an idiot if I don't say like Lake Placid or something, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to be an idiot either way, so. <laughs> don't worry, well, like, Gary. Let's get don't Lake worry, Placid. Gary. I'll make you seem like less of an idiot. <clears throat> so uh, I think people should go watch Anaconda. <laughs> you you should i just saw anaconda like three weeks ago and it was still fun <laughs> especially I mean, like, seeing uh angelina jolie's dad what's his name john uh, voight john, john voight uh as uh a hispanic guy i guess that's what he's supposed to be in that movie he doesn't pull he's it off as well as South quick drama girl <laughs> i am i am I sound like Mr. Miyagi. I've been watching Karate Kid. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Gary's bad at, bad at accents. Oh, I've been drinking like I talked about. I'm, I'm playing the Neville Brand role. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, like, I mean, you, you said Anaconda. I would say Piranha. Like, something like that. Like, if you want to see, like, some stuff based off of uh, Parada has the idea of like a monster in the water and not, I don't, I don't, Justin, do you know another movie that's like quite like this though? That like the guys like feeding, I mean, like Lake Placid legitimately like Betty White is like, yeah, cool with people eating the people, 
like you know she's like i, I mean that's what i was trying to think of other ones set like in a swamp area like this or where somebody's feeding uh and i'm sure people can tweet at us and let us know if they if there's stuff that we just couldn't think of but i can't i couldn't really think of anything quite like that i just kept going to other killer croc movies in which the alligator is actually more of like the villain and not like a human element and that made me think of like alligator from 1980 the lewis teague movie lewis teague of course he, he would later do cujo um mm. alligators written by john sales who is a an indie film director and then um alexander aja's crawl from last year mm. which is a uh, another great okay. al- killer alligator movie yeah because they're I, just kind of doing all is thing. awesome yeah. Well, well, because part of what I was going to say is like, I mean, one of the weird things about this movie, different than like if we compare it to Jaws or Anaconda or whatever, it's like those are like killer creature movies. And yes, those creatures are just doing their natural thing. But this is more about a guy who is also he's he's already crazy. And then he like the croc in this movie is not. He's just being croc. You know? yeah, yeah like it reminds me of the chris uh chris rock bit where he talks about like uh uh siegfried and roy and he was just like <laughs> he was like did y'all see that he's like i kept reading all these articles about like siegfried and roy and they were like the tiger went crazy and attacked roy and i was like nah man like the the tiger just went tiger it's a tiger it was crazy when you had it wearing a beanie and like rolling around on a unicycle that's when it was crazy like the tiger just did tiger you put roy's face in its mouth like that's that's what the tiger does and it feels like that movie's or this movie is kind of like that is like now the croc's just there dude the croc's just hanging around in the pod he's just not hunting what you throw at it yeah he's (laughs) not hunting people it's like you throw robert england into his pond and he's gonna eat you yeah, you, know, you throw so he's just doing little, uh, Snoopy in there. You know. Eating Alive was definitely not the sophomore follow-up to uh, Texas Chainsaw that Hooper had probably hoped it would be. And its legacy, I think, is kind of tainted by the fact that Hooper left the film before it was done, which, of course, brings into question the, the true authorship of the film. And it's also not the only film in Hooper's filmography in which the question of authorship is raised, but that's a story for a couple weeks down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Eating Alive, Hooper was given the opportunity to to direct a project that would be I, what I, I would think is probably what most people consider his true follow-up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And to do so, he had to move to the world of the made-for-television film, or more specifically, the made-for-television miniseries. So next week, that's where we're going to rejoin the story of Toby Hooper as we discuss his 1979 Stephen King adaptation, Salem's Lot. And yes, it is a miniseries, two parts. So I think it runs about a little over three hours long if you watch the whole thing. So if you guys want to watch Salem's Lot along with us, uh, you can head to cinemashock.net. We'll have links to everywhere where you can stream it. And uh, you can also, of course, find all of our episodes there. You can find our link to our merch link to where you can subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, you guys want to tell us where you can be found on the internet? I am at This Is Gary Horn on all of the things. I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the things, and you can find my podcast at Computer Resume on all of the things. The second episode should be up now with uh, Mr. Justin Bishop. We have, a, we have, a, Yeah, we have a fun conversation. And Gary's also got another podcast called This Is Pro Wrestling that he never wants to promote on this show, but I'm going to do it for him. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's at TIPW <laughs> Show on all of the things also. Yeah. 
And you can find Cinema Shock at Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter, Instagram. Follow us on Facebook and all that stuff. Turns out people used to wrestle gators. Well, yeah, still do. Probably still do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. I'm here. Johnny has the keys. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) It's a callback. Yeah. Yeah. That'll do that. Stop on that record.